I think we're becoming more individualistic as a society where our sort of indelible values are weakening by the day, by the year. In your early years, it was the 9-11 period of time, which I think is also can't be overstated how that has affected people's perceptions of patriotism, because I think what wound up happening was you had this terrible attack on the United States. Patriotism surged. And then I think our leaders uh, took advantage of that patriotism and did a lot of terrible things. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. All right, Ricky, we have two special episodes next week on the Lost Debate feed. On Tuesday, I'm uh, I'm protesting the show. I'm not showing up, quiet quitting. What's going to be happening on Tuesday? I'm going to be talking about free speech in my upcoming book with my co-author, Greg Lukianoff. He's the president and CEO of FIRE, a free speech organization that we've mentioned quite a few times on the show and the author of The Coddling of the American Mind from, I want to say, like 2018. And it was a fun conversation. That'll be out on Tuesday. Awesome. Uh, and then on Thursday, I talk with pollster Kristen Soltis-Anderson, who's an expert on Republican politics, and political science professor Seth Maskett. Two people who have a lot to say about the GOP presidential field. So we're going to talk about just like what's happening out there between DeSantis and Trump, what the electorate is looking for, um, different theories about like what's going to matter in this race, and whether some of the other candidates that we're, that you know the media is not talking about enough um, have any shot. And like mm-hmm. how we could size up the rest of the field. So that was a cool conversation. Uh, we also have our voicemail, 321-200-0570. Just keep sending in those voicemails. We'd love to hear from you about anything you want us to cover, any added context on something we've hit, uh, or just anything that's on your mind. Uh, well, <clears throat> with that, in this episode, we're doing Trendy Thursday. We did a Trendy Tuesday before. It was very popular with all of y'all. So we wanted to do it again. And, you know, it's helpful that we have Tuesday, Thursday shows, so there's alliteration no matter which day we decide I think Tuesday to sounds better. You think yeah, so? Yeah, To be honest, yeah. But. All right, well, we're experimenting, all right? We're experimenting here. Uh, and we're going to talk about five trends today in American society. Americans are pulling back from values that once defined the U.S., Experts say more and more millennials and especially Gen Z saying kids are something they are either unsure about or a hard no about. Just 38 percent of Americans say patriotism is very important to them, a severe drop from 70 percent in 1998. If you are seeking a better work life balance and not finding it, Yeah, you're not alone. It seems that the trends for remote work options and increased vacation, well, it's not really improving life for a lot of people. You know, when we were in school, we didn't have as many um, channels to watch. We didn't have as many games to play. That was, you know, entertainment for us to read a book and take you somewhere else. If you suspected that we are getting dumber as a society, it turns out you would not be wrong. A new study backs up what others have found, showing IQ rates have been dropping steadily for the past four decades. So let's start with a particularly depressing trend here. We've seen the headlines over the past few years. U.S. fertility rate is plummeting. It's prompting all sorts of questions about how we're going to adjust to that fact. We also like need to get to the bottom of like why these fertility rates are dropping. Dro, drop some context on us here. What's happening? Yeah, sure. Thanks. So when we talk about this number, we often use what's called the total fertility rate, which is the total number of children that a woman in a given country is expected to have in her lifetime. And here in the U.S., that number has fallen to about 1.6, which 
which is down from 3.7 in 1960. So there's been a pretty significant drop here. And the thing is, America is not alone in this trend. The entire world has seen its fertility rate drop sharply over the same period. And we see the lowest numbers in the most developed economies like South Korea, Japan, France, Germany, and the UK. All of them are either lower or in line with the US right now. So maybe a, a real question is, you know, why is this? And there are a couple different avenues to go down here. Uh, but Ravi, maybe we can start with the cost of raising a kid here in America because it is astronomical. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is this seems to be like if we separate out, there are three different things going on. There are people who can't have kids. There are people who don't want any kids. And then there are people who are having fewer kids, right? Those are like three different things all happening at the same time. And when we talk about people who want to have fewer kids, that's in particular where the data I think is really strong to say like, all right, like when you ask people, like if you're, you know, why are you only having one instead of two or three, right? There's this magic number of 2.1, this replacement level, right? People do talk about economics. Uh, and so there was this morning consult poll from 2018, uh, and this is the question of why fewer children. And if you look at the top five answers, almost all of them are economic. So number one was childcare is too expensive. Uh, number two is they want more time for the children that they have. So that was one that was non-economic. Third was they're worried about the economy. And, and mind you, this was before all of the stuff that we're going through right now. Uh, four is can't afford more children. And five is weighted because of financial instability. So that's four out of five of the top five, uh, reasons that people give for having fewer children have to do with economics. And the numbers here are interesting. Like if you look at from 1962 today, uh, inflation adjusted price of raising a kid, not including college, it's gone up about 20%, which is like not a huge change, but that's masking certain changes where it's that 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 20% increase uh, reflects certain things like like hard goods getting cheaper, but certain other things like healthcare and childcare going up tremendously during that period of time. And those are the things that I think are giving people anxiety. And, and mind you, that also doesn't include the cost of sending your kid to college, which as we've covered many times is also way more expensive than it's ever been before. Yeah, I also think there might be a little bit of a feedback loop here too, because I, th I do think at the same time you have this general cultural sense of like, oh, well, I'll have less kids and I'll invest more in them. And I do feel like we're being extorted a little bit by some of the industries that have popped up around the fact that people are spending a ton of money on their kids. And then that becomes kind of a necessity. Um, right. But it is it is crazy. So the projected average cost for a middle income family to raise a child from birth to 17 years is $310,000, which works out to roughly $18,000 a year. I understand why people might not have a gazillion kids today and perhaps what happened in the past. Of course, birth control and the fact that you have so much more direct um, control over your fertility. There are so many fewer accidental pregnancies that happen. That's certainly a factor. But I also think just like in general, the, the only child thing is becoming more and more uh, common. I'm an only child. That was my high school superlative was only child syndrome. So, And tell me how that manifested. Because one of our producers accidentally uh, accused me of being an only child once. So I, I think I have tendencies of an only child. But you, you don't seem to, like, on the surface, manifest as an only child. So how did that play oh, out really? in high school? really? Yeah. I mean, it was literally my superlative. I'm not sure. You, you can ask my classmates. But I feel like, I don't know. I, I do feel like I, I give only child vibes. Let me, so, uh, Joe, can you look up what only child syndrome symptoms are? 
Yeah, I think see. it's mostly selfishness is what people attribute to that. And I don't view you as a particularly selfish person. I don't, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't say selfish, but I do I do feel like coddled I... Coddled or, or overindulged, spoiled, oh, coddled. selfish. Interesting <laughs> word. Interesting lacking, word. Interesting lacking word. in social skills, overly sensitive. <laughs> I don't think I'm overly sensitive, but I would take lacking in social skills perhaps. I'm not going to go there on any of those things. Well, I'm just going to let that pitch go I by. I also, I was and, totally coddled. That, that's that's why I like um, Greg and John Haidt and the coddling of the American mind was because I saw my own upbringing and I was like, ooh, huh. Your dad, they're right. Maybe, I, I don't know your mom well enough, but your dad doesn't strike me as a coddler. He strikes me as a guy who's like really like loves you and is proud of you, but he doesn't seem like he'd be all up in your business. But maybe I'm wrong. No, he's not all up in my business, but I do think- you know, I was, I, I have half brothers. I was his only daughter and I think I did get a little spoiled by him. I, I'm, oh, I'm sure that he would not deny that fact. Well, shout out to Dick Schlatt. Uh, Hi dad. I actually had somebody come up to me yesterday and say that they were dying during the pickleball uh, segment that we did a long time ago. <laughs> so he's, he's popular with the, with at least the people out here in Atlanta that I was talking to who listened to the show. So, you know, on more serious matters, right? We talked about three different things, right? We talked about the people who... Uh, are having fewer kids. We have people who decide not to have any kids. And then we have people who mm -hmm. can have kids. And it's really important to know that that number is growing as well, that the can't have kids group. There is uh, the Scientific American write-up um, from Shauna Swan and Stacey Colino that talks about some data that is really scary. So uh, the whole spectrum of reproductive problems in males are increasing by about 1% per year in Western countries. They call this the 1% effect. This includes declining sperm counts, decreasing testosterone levels, and increasing rates of testicular cancer, as well as the rise of the prevalence of erectile dysfunction. On the female side, uh, miscarriage rates are increasing by about 1% per year in the US, and so is gestational surrogacy. So 1% on both sides per year uh, in terms of people who cannot, or at least are manifesting sort of obstacles to pregnancy, I guess is the best way mm -hmm. to put it. I definitely hear this from a lot of my friends. The amount of people I know who are uh, consulting physicians as a couple, um, trying to work through issues, like the amount of conversations around testosterone levels of people who mm -hmm. are in their late 30s and early 40s and trying to do things like testosterone replacement therapy. These are things that like are mainstream, prevalent. People are talking about it more than ever. And, you know, so that that's just people who just can't yeah. Oh, well, that's also, I think, just the trend of having kids later. Like, you, it's true that your fertility does taper off. And we've kind of culturally said that that's something we want to push off until as late as possible in a lot of circles. But I also think it's interesting. Like, I would, I certainly wouldn't chalk it up to that entirely because of childless people, 52% say that they don't, they don't want kids and 20% are unsure, which is the vast majority. I would say my generation definitely has drifted from the idea that like having kids is a central goal in life. Um, yeah. Whereas in, in prior generations, that certainly was, I mean, I'm probably an outlier in that sense, but I do think there's yeah. been a cultural shift where it's just, it's not as important to people. It's not necessarily a thing that you will get purpose out of. Yeah. And when you say you're an outlier, you're saying you want to have kids. I, yeah, totally. But yeah. I do, I do, I get made fun of all the time by my friends for being like, they're, for being the traditionalist little uh, baby fever friend of the group. <laughs> you know, I it, New York is a particularly bad place for this because it is so damn expensive to just be a human in New York. Like, mm -hmm. never mind trying to oh, be Oh, I would never have kids here. Humans. Absolutely not. Yeah. No. I'm going to go? suburbia. Suburbia? I, I like where I, yeah. I would well, have like, one foot. You know, I'd be close. I'd be close to the city. 
I don't know. Oh, so I hope that no men that, I'm going to scare away all the men that are listening to this podcast. You're going to live that Montclair, you know, I like, New Jersey lifestyle? Well, you know, my dad's in Jersey. He's an hour away. I think that's a nice life. Um, yeah. No, I'm yeah. not having kids here. Kids that are raised in New York City scare the shit out of me, I have to say. Mm. They are. I remember I visited a high school here. Um, and I almost went to school here at one point and I went to like one revisit day and I was like, whoa, I told my mom, these kids are fast, which makes Look me sound that. like an 80 year old. <laughs> that makes me so proud of my city. <laughs> All right. Well, let's bring this home with a clip, uh, just talking about this kind of this time bomb that's existing right now. Cause we have right now the largest group of retirees, uh, that are hitting retirement, um, than we've ever had and ever will have. Uh, and this is a clip. Um, from Melissa Carney, who is a professor of economics at the University of Maryland. Uh, and this is what she had to say about just like how stark this issue is right now. Now we are at a level of fertility in this country that is below replacement level, meaning without immigration, the population um, will not uh, maintain our size. And so what's been happening is for uh, 15 years, annual birth rates have gone down. And now we're at a point where the average number of children born to a woman in the U.S. is substantially below the sort of magic number of 2.1 that would keep us at replacement population level. It's now 1.67. Obviously, this is a little scary. You know, we're not we're not allowing a lot of people into our country like immigration has been slowing. Um, we're not having more kids. We have, but then we have all these people retiring, and we have a social security system that depends upon us, you know, yeah. you know, contributing to that. And we also those people need, you know, caregivers, et cetera. So there was this write up um, in Motley Fool, basically trying to project out social security and its solvency, and essentially saying like, if our fertility rate is something like one point nine nine, so slightly below the replacement rate, the deficit in social security would be about 3.42%, uh, which is a lot. And that means that the payroll taxes will have to increase roughly that amount. Uh, but if it comes in at 1.69, that deficit uh, goes up to 4.13%, which is about $20 trillion. And mm -hmm. you know that 1.69 is actually higher than our current fertility rate, right? In 2020, it was 1.64. So uh, we could be seeing a 20 plus trillion dollar shortfall in social security alone, never mind like the deficit and like having caregivers and people to, you know, you know, care for an aging population in this country. I think this is why Elon Musk is having all those kids is because he wants to save social security. Ricky, how do we feel about America? Well, I love America. I think that's not a secret to anyone. But um, Joe, does everyone else? Well, not so much. So the latest polling here comes from the Wall Street Journal this week. They were looking at the broad scope of what they called values that once defined America, like religion, something we discussed last time on Trendy Tuesday, as well as what we just talked about having children. But it also included patriotism, which has really nosedived over the last 20 years or so. So when the journal first asked this question back in 1998, 70% of people said patriotism was very important to them. That number has since been cut nearly in half, sitting at just 38% today. Ricky, what do you think is driving this unpatriotic trend? I mean, I think we've had a pretty turbulent last decade in American life, and some people have gotten jaded as a result. Um, there's also definitely a difference party wise for sure. Um, Republicans have always been 
uh, higher in reporting that patriotism is important to them. In terms of people who say that they're extremely proud of being an American, it's 58% of Republicans versus just 26% of Democrats. Um, and you know, this is, this is a staggering difference age wise too, generationally. Like if you compare between 18 and 29 year olds and 65 plus, it's a 36 point difference. Um, the older people are much more patriotic. It's actually a bigger difference than religion, which I would have thought would be the biggest thing or the biggest generational difference, but that's 24 point difference versus Mm -hmm. a 36 point difference for patriotism. So I think there's a lot of factors at play. I think, um, certainly my generation was not raised or at least my, in my universe was not raised with this like beaming pride about this country. Um, I was, but, um, I think that might be because I have an older parent. Yeah. What's interesting is that same poll showed decline in religion, community involvement, et cetera. And the one sort of, and, and the way so the question depressing. was asked, yeah. And, and the, the question was asked, like, what is very important to you? The only thing that increased during that time period was money. So money being very important to people. So I think we're becoming more individualistic as a society where our sort of indelible values are weakening by the day, by the year. And, uh, you know, and, and that, that partisan difference is stark. But what's also stark is that even that 58% among Republicans is the lowest that they've seen. So mm-hmm. even amongst that group that tends to, to register as more patriotic in these polls, even their patriotism is declining. And, you know, what's interesting in your lifetime, Ricky, like at the beginning, you know, in your early years, it was the 9-11 period of time, which I think is also can't be overstated how that has affected people's perceptions of patriotism, because I think what wound up happening was you had this terrible attack on the United States. Patriotism surged. Mm-hmm. And then I think our leaders uh, took advantage of that patriotism and did a lot of terrible things. You know, we just passed the anniversary of the Iraq war, right? Um, and- the, the, I think a lot of people uh, felt like they were being manipulated. And like, I'm, I'm patriotic. My mom, like, you know, we, we're like every year we go to the 4th of July parade at Travis in Staten Island. We, we always fly in an American flag. My brother served in the military. Uh, I've, I've, I want to love my country. I do love my country. I want to like find a way to talk about its flaws in ways that are a little bit different than a lot of people on the left. But at the same time, I went through this period of time where I felt like our leaders were manipulating us uh, into like taking our patriotism to justify like really horrible things, which is always like the risk when you fly the flag. Do you think that's any different from like any other country or any other period in time though? Like I, I mean, in terms of people going to war and, and using national pride to do that. But I'm not sure, like, is that the question? Like, Viet- like, isn't like, Vietnam, no, but I'm, I'm just, yeah. I mean, I'd like Vietnam would be an example. I'm sure that's kind of similar in some people's minds. Yeah, but like, I would say it's, it probably was more significant, you know, like, you know, World War One, for example, like we were, we were sending kids into the trenches for a pretty useless war. Um, and basically just having them um, charge, uh, you know, right into machine gun fire uh, without much strategy. Like, obviously, Vietnam was a disaster. Uh, so like, I think like, this has been a long running trend. And it used to be wars used to be fought just out of a sense of pride. Like, you know, they weren't even like geopolitical struggles. It was almost just like a sense of honor. It's crazy. You look at a lot of these wars. So like, I think this has long been a trend. I just think it's been a bad trend. I think so many bad things in this in, in our history have been justified in the name of flying the flag. But then again, I'm not, 
I don't think patriotism has to be bad. And this reminds me of, you know, Noah Yuval Harari uh, has been arguing that there is a good nationalism that we need right now. Uh, and let's go to this clip because I think he makes an interesting point here. A lot of people are concerned about the rise of nationalism, but I think we should be very careful to separate the good side from the bad side of nationalism. Obviously, ultranationalism, which becomes fascism and which leads to war and genocide, is one of the worst phenomena in, in human history. But nationalism also has a very uh, bright side. And, you know, people imagine that without nationalism, we would all be living in some kind of liberal paradise. But much more likely, without nationalism, we would be living in tribal chaos. Because the big project of nationalism is to make a lot of strangers care about one another and be able to cooperate. I come from a relatively small nation, Israel. It has just 8 million citizens. But still, I don't know 99.99% of the other Israelis. I don't know them personally. I never met most of them. I'm unlikely to ever meet them. Uh, but nationalism makes it possible for me to care about these millions of strangers and to cooperate with them. And this has been one of the greatest advances in human history. So I like this definition. In a sense, it's like there is a patriotism and nationalism that could be framed around hatred of others, right? Like this is certainly like, you know, if we talk about World War II, for example. But then there's a patriotism and nationalism that's like, hey, I love my country. I love mm -hmm. my fellow citizens' country. I want to make it as strong as it possibly can be. And I think that could reframe it for the left in particular, because I think the left is, is really like gets very icky about any sense of like flying the flag and, you know, like talking about patriotism and love of country. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think like if we've reframed it in this way, hopefully it can bring people along. Yeah, I mean, this is really deeply rooted in, in American history too. that sense that there's um, a love of country is also you can advocate for a betterment of your country. And like Tocqueville said that about the the way that he saw um, early Americans participating in our civic system where they loved their government and they criticized it vehemently. Um, and that was just kind of part of the American tradition. I think it yeah. could certainly be reframed with the left in that sense. Um, I also would say like another just last factor to throw in there is like, I don't think schools do the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. Or, like any sort of reminder that you're an American citizen or that you're a part of a larger collective. I obviously, you know, don't compel students. We can't do that with the first amendment anyways, but I do think that like some of those traditions and stuff, like I, at some point in my school process, they stopped doing it, I think. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know, just, just growing up with that reminder that you're part of a larger story than just your little community and ecosystem, I think is a good thing. Yeah. I wonder with the pledge, if it's symptom or cause, you know, but also it reminds me of what did you say in the last episode? We're trapping kids in uh, government. <laughs> so so yeah. what you want, Ricky? I have some like, very anarchist Your definition about. of school is that we're trapping kids in, I forget what it yeah, is. Uh, we're basically caging it. them. And you want them to recite their love of government. Yeah, I apparently I, said, I, I described school saying. as children being forcibly contained by the government for days on end, apparently. But I'm, I, said, I said don't compel it. I did say that. That's very important, yeah. but I do think I do think that's a nice tradition that we lost. I I don't I I 
I don't know if it's a symptom or a cause, but I think especially growing up in the social media age and how many little like ecosystems and, and rabbit holes that you can fall down and like the way that you can live the second digital yeah. life. There's a nice reminder in the beginning of the day at school growing up that like you're part of a bigger story and a, and a country and mm-hmm. not just your little, your little cell phone basically. I, I do think like, this is why I love national service as an idea. Now, I don't think we need to necessarily compel it, which I know would, would not be popular with, with you. But I do think if we can incentivize more national service and particularly do it in a way that brings people from different backgrounds together, like if I could just institute one program, it could either be philanthropic or government. It doesn't have to be one or the other. I would take people from different backgrounds, rural, urban, together, et cetera, and send them out to do critical work, whether it's teach, serve in hospitals, et cetera. And I think it would give people an appreciation because like, I've been blessed to be able to spend a lot of time in Red America, you know, running schools or my dad who lived in Alabama for 20 years. And I love it. Like I, I have so many friends and uh, so many great experiences with people who are ideologically different than I am. And that's part of the what colors this show and this entire media company is that I have such warm feelings about people. So like, I think I'm a, I have a little, I'm inoculated in a certain way from some of the polarization. And I think that gives people an appreciation of the country, but we don't we don't do that as much anymore. We don't really mix it up with people who are different than ours, and I think that could be playing a role here. Hey, Ricky, I just found a statistic online: forty-seven states in the U.S. require the Pledge of Allegiance to be recited in public schools. Uh, I do think that might be exceptions. being ignored. Yeah, I do think that's yeah. being ignored. Yeah. Also, they can't require it for individual students, but. Oh, is um, that right? I didn't know that. Yeah, it's compelled speech. The Supreme Court has said as much. Well, let's talk about work-life balance. And there's like a hodgepodge of data here. We could talk about a lot of different things, but there's one really weird part of the data here, which is this paradox that wealthy people, particularly men, wealthy men, have generally been increasing their working hours, uh, despite already making more money. And this was happening, I think, from the 80s until mm-hmm. very recently. But with the pandemic, this re- this trend has been reversing, Joe. Is that right? Yeah. So I'll go ahead and I'll read you guys a quote from uh, Derek Thompson's piece in The Atlantic. He says, specifically from 1980 to 2005, the richest 10% of married men increased their work hours by more than any other group of married men, about five hours a week or 250 hours a year. This year, Washington University researchers concluded that since 2019, rich Americans have worked less and less and less. In a full reversal of the past 50 years, the highest educated, highest earning, and longest working men reduced their hours the most during the pandemic. And I'll tell you just how much about 77 fewer hours in 2022. Uh, That's about 1.5 hours each week. Wow. And it seems like there was was also a trend of higher income women as well. It just wasn't as significant. And it seems like if you go even deeper into the data, um, the Census Bureau data from the equivalent period of time, this is particularly true of married men. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I I think the unmarried... Uh, men, at least according to the Census Bureau, didn't have the same trend. So they, so this is like particularly of married men. Potentially has to do with kids being at home, 
prioritizing sort of family life, et cetera. There is some static in that data. Like they could also be playing a lot more golf for interestingly, some of the data may suggest, uh, is this a good trend, Ricky? I don't know what to think about it because it's like a particularly niche population, but like obviously very well, powerful Well, you know what? I, I'm not seeing it as much about like kids and stuff. Like it to me, when I hear top earning married men, I'm hearing older men. Mm -hmm. that that's just what I'm imagining. And if you, you've already accrued wealth, you're already a high income earner. You, you know, we do have this culture of um, 62% of high earners work more than 50 hours a week, a third over 60 hours a week and a 10th over 80 hours a week. So, you know, we have this culture of you just continue to work and work and work. I understand I, this could be like a, like not retirement, but like a, a like a slow retirement kind of phase out thing that older men were doing in the pandemic because they realized I've accrued wealth. I can afford to take it a little bit easier, perhaps. Like to me, that's what this sounds like mm -hmm. mostly. There's a cultural element to this too. So my, my old professor from law school, Dan Markovitz wrote a book uh, about meritocracy, which is very provocative. But within that book, he talks about how there used to be this sense that if you were rich, there was like a leisure class that you talk about. Like, so you, mm -hmm. if you're rich, you basically tried not to show that you worked back in the day. So like, if you were like a working rich person, that was like a faux pas. Whereas now, like rich people do everything possible to show that they're productive. So like, if you, if you spend a lot of time with a bunch of rich yeah. people, they're all investors, right? Like they, they have a title, right? They, they don't want to be like, I'm just a rich person sitting on my interests, right? They want to be active, rich people. And this is the first time that might be reversing a little bit. And, and, and it could be cultural. Like it could be that something happened in the pandemic where people are like, all right, I'm, I feel more comfortable signaling to people around me that I'm just kind of taking it more easy. I don't even know if it's signaling it necessarily. It might just be internal, I, I, but I do feel like we've had a cultural shift that in some ways is positive away from like the old money aesthetic of like, I, I don't do anything and I've inherited my wealth to a kind of new, new money, entrepreneurial American grind sort of yep. thing being valued. Um, and I, but I would say, I mean, if you look at the statistics still, like these people in this, th this bracket are working a lot of hours. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that they're like going around, uh, carrying their golf clubs and telling everyone that they have all this new free time. Like I, I do think that maybe this was a, a healthy life chapter kind of slow down thing. Cause I saw even with like my dad's 85 and I'm like, cut it out. You don't need to go back to work, mm -hmm. but he really wants to. Um, but I feel like there, there is maybe that generation is having like a, a healthier relationship to work now, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. And it's important to note like the overall trends here, which is in general, yeah. uh, people, lower income people in the United States and abroad tend to work more than wealthy people. This has been true. Uh, Derek Thompson outlines this. It's true across countries and across time. So, you know, Derek Thompson talks about how people in Cambodia work much more than people in Switzerland and that across time, for example, Germans in the 1950s worked almost twice as much as they do today. Uh, but this, 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 this static though in the top 10% of the US and that sort of changes from the 80s until very mm. recently it's kind of confounding in a way. Uh, it is also yeah. interesting that the US, we just work more like across any economic level. So an MBER paper 
uh, you know, basically, here's what the data they found is that the average U.S. worker logged uh, 1,791 hours in 2021. That's compared to 1,685 in Canada, 1,607 in Japan, 1,497 in the U.K., and 1,490 in France. So the French, like something on the order of 300 fewer hours a year. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's still only 35 hours a week, though. It's... You know, that's not a staggering number on average. If you're working, yeah. if you say, if you say you're taking two vacation weeks, potentially of over 50, that's like 35 hours a week. Yeah. So, I think it's I the know. average, you know, that's what's doing it. Cause that yeah. average is masking some pretty extremes, you know? I agree. Do you guys know who is not loving this trend right now? Who? Who? Kevin O'Leary. If I had to give one piece of advice to somebody starting a business, here it is. Forget about balance in life. You're going to work 25 hours a day nonstop on your business. You won't have a life. That's what it takes to be successful. There are no soccer games. There's no family picnics. Forget about that. You're going to be competing with people in Mumbai and Shanghai who want to kick your ass. It's a job 24-7. So don't get any him. ideas, Ravi. <laughs> well, I think, uh, he, I think he could be right about how you become rich. Right. Like, I think, like, you, you generally speaking, like, unless you inherit money, you have to work pretty hard to start a successful company, which is in particular what he's talking about. Right. Yeah. So, when you're young. Yeah. 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 I think you had to go in head first and, and work, grind when you're young with no regard for other things, perhaps at times. But also, he's always, he's, he's always kind of trolling. He kind yeah. of is, he kind of isn't. So I don't know. Well, I think that's, a, that's enough of that. I, I, I'm exhausted. I think we've worked hard enough on this segment. Uh, should we go to something else here? Uh, you know. Oh, that was so cheesy. I know. Uh, well, Those Joe. Dad jokes. Dad jokes. <laughs> I have to. I have to show my age every now and then. You know, it's all this leisure time, all this surfing I had. I have all this time mm. to come up with dad jokes. Your Ozempic What's and next? your ayahuasca. Let's never, um, we can't mention Ozempic anymore. The audience <laughs> has finally forgiven me for that comment and we can't keep reminding them for that, of that. I will never let that die. Well, Joe, um, speaking of free time, how, how is reading going over with the American youth? Yeah, so according to a survey from late 2019 to early 2020 by the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the percentages of 9- and 13-year-olds who said that they read for fun on their own time almost every day were at their lowest points since 1984. Among 9-year-old students, 42% said that, said that they read for fun almost every day in 2020. That's down from 53% in both 2012 and 1984. At the same time, the share of nine-year-olds who said they never or hardly ever read for fun on their own time was at its highest point since 1984. Now, I would be remiss not to mention that social media use has also skyrocketed among kids and teens during the same time. According to the 2021 Common Sense Census, on average, eight to 12-year-olds use about five and a half hours of screen media per day, while 13 to 18-year-olds use about eight and a half hours a day. My numbers are not nearly as high. Uh, Ricky, do you think there's any correlation here between between social media use and the decline of re reading we're seeing? Yeah, 100%. And the percentage, if you look over time of kids that say that they do almost no um, leisure reading, goes 
up pretty much exactly at 2012, which is the point in time where social media became um, more ubiquitous. I would say definitely. I mean, even growing up, I I look back at how many hours of time and like summer hours I spent doing things on on technology that I don't really remember. And I wish that I had read more books and I, I fell into that trap. I had to be very deliberate um, as like, as I got older to say, like, I'm going to get more pleasure long-term out of reading, but certainly it was difficult for me to, and now I'm a huge reader and like, that's a, obviously I'm writing a book, but like that, it took a deliberate amount of um, attention on my, on my part to kind of separate myself from the, the instinct of growing up with with devices and using that for virtually all my free time. In fact, I have to say, as depressing as it is, I'm surprised that 42% of kids do say that they're reading every day for fun. Yeah. That seems high. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll link in the show notes to uh, Dana Goldstein uh, did a write-up about national reading results. Uh, and just generally, kids can't read as well as they used to. So mm-hmm. we're seeing a decline pretty much across the board, in some cases, staggering declines. Now, I think a lot of people will respond to this and be like, well, like, you don't, we don't consume our information, you know, in the same way anymore. And kids are getting their information online. And so it's kind of a substitute. I, I think that is an extremely optimistic take on what kids are doing on these social media platforms. Yeah. And I do think like the sense of concentration and depth you get from reading a book is not replaced by a YouTube video or a TikTok video. I'm not saying that those videos are not providing value. I'm just saying that they're not replacing uh, what they've taken away. And I think that the the shortening attention spans, the lack of context and depth of knowledge that kids have, uh, the lack of familiarity with the written word, all this comes together in a way that makes me very concerned about the future generation. Yeah. And I think this is like, you have to develop a love for reading. I don't think that's intuitive. Um, necessarily and growing up and having that be a thing that you do like uh, in your free time, I think is it's a skill and a muscle that you build and to tell a kid that grew up on an iPad or grew up watching YouTube videos. I mean, I, I am genuinely convinced that that must be rewiring like their dopamine and hits in their brain and, and the, the need for a short term reward sort of thing versus a longer term project, like reading a book. I'm, I, I'm concerned that this is just going to get worse and worse and worse as we have, you know, the kids that are, I guess this, this is measuring the kids that were kind of the iPad generation, but I would say, you know, I got an iPhone when I was 10 and I had always had like a computer and I always had digital devices to turn to. But I look at kids today, like I was at a dinner the other day with my dad and we were looking at these two very well-behaved boys who were like probably five or six at dinner, but they were on their iPads the entire time. And like, that's great for the parents because they, they're no disruption, but it's also, I mean, I just am frightened for what this is going to do longer term. And certainly reading is one of the most rewarding things that you can do. And Mm. I'm not surprised that this is going down, but I still have to say 42% every day is more than I would have thought. 42% of what? Uh, Of kids who... Of kids reading every day is more than I would have thought. Absolutely. Like, I I would have guessed it would have been close to like 20%, to be honest. Well, it's a key to happiness as well, expectations, so... (laughs) Related story here is this decline of IQ... Uh, so, like, we, Joe, are are we getting dumber? Is that what's going on here? Yeah, that that unfortunately might be the case. A recent study 
from uh, researchers at Northwestern University suggests that the average IQ scores in the U.S. has actually decreased in recent years. Now, this is a major shift in a phenomenon that's known as the Flynn effect, where IQ scores have risen from about 1932 through the 20th century by about three to five points per decade. Now, the study analyzed almost 400,000 people's IQs from 2006 to 2018 and found a significant decline compared to previous generations. Now, the researchers didn't examine the reason for the decline, uh, but they point to a number of potential theories in the scientific community, including poor nutrition, worsening health, and changes in education. Obviously, there is a lot of debate around the value and accuracy of IQ scores. So it'll be interesting to see how this new study gets received by the public. Yeah. And I think like a lot of people are confused because a lot of people haven't taken IQ tests. So like, what is this thing? And there are different measures of IQ, but I think in general, um, these are tests that try to uh, test your cognitive skills and logical reasoning, problem solving, et cetera. And you generally will get a series of problems that increase in difficulty uh, as you go along and, and you have a certain time limit generally to finish them. An interesting wrinkle here is that there's four measures. Three went down, reasoning, letter and number series, verbal reasoning. But then the three-dimensional rotation measure went up, I'm, which is like a spatial reasoning huh. sort of thing. And I, I'm not sure why that might be. Video games, maybe? You know? Maybe. They, you know, because kids... You know, I, I, these video games do make people a certain kind of smarter, I guess, right? Do like they? your reflexes and things like that could be better. I don't know. I'm trying to be know. optimistic here. This is I kind of know. a bummer to end Because this went on. down regardless of your age, regardless of your education, regardless of your gender. Like it's just across the board. People are just going down and it's mm. the worst with 18 to 22 year olds, which I think has to be a factor of social media too, or, or screen mm. time, not necessarily just social media, but- well, yeah, we talked about in the last segment, like people's uh, like ability to comprehend text is going down yeah. as well. They're reading less. So I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Idiocracy, but I think that's where we're heading now, which is people are just going to get dumber and dumber and dumber. I certainly feel it checks out to me. <laughs> there are people in my yeah. life. So uh, I don't know, but I do think that there's been like a little bit of a cultural reawakening around some like older school things like reading. I do think that like there's a, a renewed popularity of like, holding a physical book and stuff. And there's a little bit of a backlash to like the Kindle e-reader sort of, we're going to digitize ourselves entirely. So maybe there'll be some traditional folks that come up and like revive. That's got to be a niche phenomenon though. Cause like I the data so. we just looked at, I know. Should, like I think demonstrates that it like quite the opposite is happening, whether it's digital or physical copies of books. Um, I know this is really depressing because over through the like entirety of the 20th century, the um, so-called Flynn effect was making IQ tests go up by three to five points on average. And that was a huge feat for us. Like we had, we had better educational access. We had mm -hmm. more exposure to cultural things and perhaps opportunities to learn in your day-to-day -day life and not just toiling away at some factory job or something. Health was better. Nutrition was better. We had special education for um, flourish for kids that might have otherwise developed um, learning disabilities that worsened. We we didn't have exposure to lead and arsenic, which lowers your IQ. Like I, right. We had so many... We were really on the up and up and up. And this is just an unsurprising um, crash. I'd be curious to see... 
in terms of the, these youth IQ scores, what the differential is in a country like China, where they're like banning TikTok after a certain period of time and they're exporting these sort of dumbing down agents to us. I, I wonder if they're um, avoiding a similar fate there. I'd be curious. Well, something to look at. One thing I do know for sure is that if you're a listener to Lost Debate, you probably have a high IQ. It's probably been going up since you've been listening to us. So I just want to... I just want to point out to our audience that this is the place where uh, you can That sounded very self-aggrandizing. <laughs> no, it's for sure true. It's actually, MIT, there's a study from MIT that we will not link in the show notes because it's hard to access, but it shows that if you're a Lost Debate listener, your IQ goes up uh, with every episode. Um, I do, yeah, I do have that in the research. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. We have a, a voicemail from Laura from Illinois on school lunches. Illinois? Illinois? Illinois on school lunches. How's your IQ? <laughs> Hello, Ricky, Robbie, and Joe. This is Laura from Illinois. Um, just wanted to let you know that I'm listening to your debate about school lunches, and I work in a school system where I do know that kids are no longer tiered, obviously, when they get their lunches. The way it works in our school district, because we do the National School Lunch Program, is that their ID code on their lunch card has an indicator for the cashier when they go through the lunch line that shows whether they're free, reduced, or a paid meal. And none of the kids know who is free, reduced, or paid. Nobody's allowed to see that information. Even teachers can't see that information. So every kid has a card. Every kid gets a lunch. And then only people who know whether it's free, reduced, or paid would be the lunchroom person checking them out at the cashier. Just wanted to let you know. And good job. We love what you're doing. I love voicemails from people in schools. Uh, I really do. Uh, and I love the diversity of our audience. You know, you think about the kind mm -hmm. of experiences people call in with. Like, there's an audience member. It's almost like, remember, like, there's a Trump tweet for everything. There's, like, an audience member for every segment. Uh, and this mm -hmm. just reminds me of that. Thank you so much for that context. Now, that's a good place to end, Ricky, because that's a good trend. I was talking about how yeah. that used to be basically, like, a scarlet letter in IS-51 in Staten Island. You knew who was what. Yeah. Now, I'm so glad we're better about this. I am so glad, because that's just, like really bad. I had never even heard of what you were describing before. So I guess my generation, yeah. that was not as much a thing. Um, yeah. And thankfully, because that, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that we're making progress on that front. Well, should we? I think this is it. We're going to end on a positive note. Thank you to our listeners. Remember to rate, a lot of negative subscribe. Notes. <laughs> no, we ended on a good note. I know. We I on know. A good note. Uh, we're not shaming children anymore based on their parents' Good. income. That is a great trend in America. Uh, well, thank you to everybody. We will have that special series of episodes next week. And then we'll be back uh, a week after that with our regularly scheduled programming. Uh, thank you very much and have a nice day. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Nick Perrone. Research support from Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Video editing by Julia Waldman. Audio editing by Dean Metherall. <laughs>